Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're back in Mark chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 39 this morning. And I want to read that as you turn there. Mark chapter 1 verse 29 says this, And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogue throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. We're back in this mini-series within the study of Mark that we titled a couple of weeks ago, if you remember, The Unrivaled Authority of Jesus. And we want to look at some of these passages in chapters 1 and into chapter 2 that really highlight Jesus' complete and total authority over everything, over the physical realm, over the supernatural realm, over the demonic realm over sickness, over demon possession, all of that. So we want to look at this particular theme. Um, I told you that I went to Northern California recently for a speaking engagement up there. But also recently I, I, went to, I, I had the opportunity to speak somewhere else where after the message there at that location, a young man came up to me after the message and he wanted to tell me about the testimony of how the Lord saved him. And um, he said, Pastor, I really want to share with you in light of kind of what you shared about being on mission and everything, what the Lord did in my life. And he went on to tell me about just his his upbringing and how from a very early age as a toddler, um, he had been sexually molested. Um, Then uh, he grew up basically in a home with a father who was very authoritative, who was who who basically abused him uh, verbally and abused him physically um, throughout his lifetime so that he became a very troubled young man. By the time that he was a teen, and uh, that led to all kinds of problems with the law. He eventually wound up in ju- a juvenile hall, had all kinds of issues with police officers and authorities and all of that. And he had a very anti-authority attitude. Um, after getting out of juvenile hall, he mentioned how he, he was in and out of jail repeatedly. He was just a very troubled young man, as you can understand. And, um, you know, I asked him, what changed? What changed? And he said, did you even need to ask? Christ. Christ. The Lord came into my life, he said, and, and from that point on, the Lord began to re, reorient my thinking in all of these areas, including in the area of authority, he says, and for the first time, he said, in my life, I, I experienced what it meant, as I came to know Jesus, what it meant to have a Savior who was for me, who actually exercised his authority for my good. He says, he's my Lord. He says, and I love how he said this, he, he, he mentioned how he, it wasn't that as he looked back in his life that now he was, he was exploited and that he was a victim of his circumstances, that yeah, those things exacerbated his sin, but he, he, he owned his own sin. He recognized that Jesus was his Lord, was his master, and that he had lived his whole life in mutiny and in rebellion against the Lord, and his circumstances had only exacerbated that so that he became even more hateful toward the Lord. 
So he realized that. But he also said, but I love how Jesus is also my Savior. He said, and for the first time in my life, even given my experience, I have now learned what it means to actually have a Savior who exercises His authority, he said, for my good and for my benefit. And I thought, that is wonderful, isn't it? That is wonderful. And beloved, for many of us, like that young man, I think when we hear the terminology of authority or the concept of authority, we have images in our heads of of abuse, of being treated in a condescending kind of a way, of maybe being exploited by people. And we know people that come to mind in our heads as the, the video plays in our minds about those people who exploited us and who abused authority. But like that young man, isn't it wonderful when you come to know Jesus Christ that you and I are now followers of one who has unrivaled authority, but he used that authority to fulfill his Father's will by coming to heal broken people like you and I. I love that about our Savior. The glory of the Gospel is that God's eternal and mighty Son, the one who has unrivaled authority, came to earth to seek and to save those who are spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins. That's the glory of the Gospel. Jesus, who who had it all, in humility condescended to earth so that you and I would be able to have hope because of His atoning sacrifice on the cross. Because He condescended and He humbled Himself coming to earth, we now have salvation, beloved, if we've trusted in Him, and we now have hope. Amen? As we sing about the glorious return of Christ. I love how reflecting on some of these things, this train of thought, Jonathan Edwards says that Jesus, in the person of Christ, we have an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. Think about that. In Christ, we have an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. In other words, that in Christ, we see Jesus as both transcendent, He is above us all, and majestic and infinitely powerful in all of that, and yes, yet He is eminent, He is very near to us as our High Priest. That even though Jesus is Lord, He has authority, He's sovereign ruler over all, according to the Father's will, He is also our Savior who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the, is the lion, which is a symbol of power and strength in Scripture. And yet He's also the lamb who is humble and gentle and meek. In Christ, we have an admirable conjunction of divine excellencies. And we spend our whole lives beholding this glorious one, right? That's why we want to study the Gospel of Mark. Because we want to behold this one revealed through the Gospel of Mark as the suffering servant Savior. So that our response, beloved, as we see Him and as we behold Him is, is worship Christ. Treasure Christ. Value Christ. So that sin becomes more dim in our lives and Christ shines all the brighter, right? That's why we want to behold Him on the pages of the Gospel of Mark. Now, we've already seen Jesus' unrivaled authority in His words and works, if you remember in chapter 1, verses 21 through 28, that Jesus spoke like no other man ever spoke on this earth. You see the testimony of the people in verse 22, that when they heard Him teaching in the synagogues, they were amazed at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And look at verse 27. They were amazed after the, he cast out the demon so that they debated amongst themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately the news spread about him everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. 
Jesus shows his authority in that passage in the fact that he casts out demons, but more so, he's, all of those, that miracle and all the other miracles are pointing to who he is. That he is the only hope of humanity. That he is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah promised from the Old Testament. And people begin to see this authority of Christ. Now this morning, we want to continue seeing this unrivaled authority of Jesus as he served various people in verses 29 through 39. Because as, we, as, the, uh, as I mentioned in the example that I gave you a few minutes ago, beloved, Christ came exercising his authority in a way, according to the Gospel of Mark, that served humanity. He came to serve humanity. And in this passage, in verses 29 through 39, I want us to behold Jesus, the servant, again, exercising his authority in three particular ways. One, he exercised his authority as a tender servant, in verses 29 through 31, as a sacrificial servant in verses 32 to 34, and as a devoted servant in verses 35 through 39. Let's look at Jesus as the tender servant, first and foremost, in verses 29 through 31. When you think about Jesus, and you have spent much time, I'm sure, over the years reading your Bibles, right? As faithful Christians should, if we want to hear from the Lord. When you think about Christ, Christ was so powerful that he could heal by mere words. That if he had chosen to, he could have healed people from a distance, from miles away if he wanted to. And yet what we see about the Lord Jesus Christ is that his pattern was to meet the needs of humanity and serve humanity in a very personal, tender way. And we see this beginning in verses 29 through 31. These verses... 29 through 31 happened in very close sequence with the previous uh, casting of demons in the synagogue. And that signaled, if you'll notice in verse 29, by the words, and immediately. Very close sequence. It's still the Sabbath day. It's still Saturday. And it was customary to partake of the, the main Sabbath meal that afternoon, immediately after the synagogue service. And so arrangements had been made for this to happen at Simon's house, where Andrew also, his brother, lived. The arrangements had been made ahead of time. Now, I don't know about you, okay? But after a wonderful corporate worship service on Sunday mornings, and after fellowshipping together and singing to the Lord together and hearing the message of God's Word and thinking about how we might apply it together even in our fellowship groups, how hungry are you on Sunday mornings? Pretty hungry, right? I mean, it's like it's almost like it doubles for me on Sunday afternoons. I am extremely, especially hungry. I'm sure it happens to you as well. We enjoy spiritual food together on Sunday mornings, and now we're ready for some physical food, right? That's why we have so many munch and mingles, right? And I know that if we ever went away from munch and mingles, we'd probably have a split church, right? We love munch and mingles. We, Calvary Bible Church loves having meals and fellowship around food, right? We love it. Amen, right, Arvin? Where is he at? Amen, brother. And some of us really think ahead and we plan ahead. Maybe we cook something the previous night so that it's ready. We're going to have somebody over on Sunday afternoon and we're able to enjoy some food. But some of you ladies maybe leave a, a crock pot cooking back home. My wife sometimes does that, especially if we're going to have people over. You make preparations ahead of time. And some of you just pick something up on the way home, right? It's like you're, you're one time a week where you do that. It's important. It's top priority to eat Sundays after church. And so we make those preparations and that way we don't get cranky, right? 
Well, in this instance, Simon had made arrangements for his mother-in-law, who is unnamed in this passage, who lived with them. Uh, we know that Simon uh, Peter was married according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There he's mentioned as Cephas. We know that he was married. And so his mother-in-law, we don't know the details, but she was set to prepare a meal for Jesus and the disciples. But there's a problem, isn't there? Look at verse 30. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever. Oh no! Instead of, of arriving to a warm meal to go, uh, ready to go, they find the cook sick. This is not good. And there she is, this poor little lady, lying prostrate, face down, burning up with a fever. She's sick. Luke, the beloved physician, in Luke chapter 4, verse 38, in a parallel account, calls uh, her, her condition a great fever, he says. Her condition was so severe that this woman is incapacitated, unable to serve them, unable to make a meal for them. And we can assume that if she would have uh, been okay, physically able to cook a meal for Jesus, who's coming, a pretty important person, and the disciples, she would have done it. But she's incapacitated. She's unable to serve them. Well, the situation would have been hopeless were it not for the fact that the disciples knew who they have with them, right? They have Jesus. Jesus, who just showed His great power in the previous passage, casting out a demon in the synagogue. They know he's able to do something about this. And so in verse 30, it says that, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. Luke chapter 4, verse 38 says that they asked Jesus to help her. And already, wherever the disciples are, as far as their commitment to Christ, you already see the disciples showing faith in Jesus that he's both able and willing to help this woman. And so their first response of desperation as they see Simon Peter's mother-in-law sick with a fever, is to go to the one who is able to, to help them. And so what did Jesus say? What did Jesus do? Tell her to throw in a couple of Tylenols, right? Or help her to, tell her to, to, to apply some essential oils to her little temples, right? By the way, that does work a little bit, okay? Don't laugh. No, our Lord is more than happy to help. Notice verse 31. It describes the healing miracle in a very personal way. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited or served them. So concise. So brief the description. So unembellished is Mark's description. And yet here, Jesus shows, shows his great power and authority over a severe human sickness of this woman. He merely touched her and she was healed. But what I want you to notice is how tender and how compassionate and how merciful Jesus is in his healing of this little poor woman who was very sick. He stands over by her side. Doesn't just zap her from a distance, right? Okay, get up, cook. Go make our meal. Goes over to her. He touches her by personally taking her by the hand. And then he gently raises her up so that she is healed. Luke 4.39 says that he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Mark chapter 8 verse 15, the parallel account says that he healed her by touching her. All three accounts, beloved, emphasize a very close, up-close, personal, immediate, and complete healing by our Lord of this woman. A very compassionate one. You know, I've seen a lot of doctors during my lifetime. 
And I'll tell you the doctors I really don't particularly care for. And you probably have had this experience. The worst kind of doctor is that doctor who, who kind of comes in. They don't even introduce themselves. They're very impersonal. They're kind of indifferent. They're very distant from you. Maybe he sits really far away from you and he's almost yelling at you from across the room, right? And maybe in his handling of you, he's, he, he, might, he or she might be abrasive, sort of uncaring in their, in their way of, of meeting your need. They don't even really ask you questions about how you're doing. I mean, who likes to see that kind of a doctor? Nobody does. You want to come in and see a doctor who is, who is caring, who is asking questions, who sits very close to you, even though you know that they are becoming vulnerable sitting there next to you? That's the kind of uh, a physician you want to see, right? Some of you have examples of good physicians like that, and you've been with them for decades because of the tender care that they apply when they're with you. Well, this is what Jesus is like perfectly when he deals with us, right? Jesus is, identifies with us. Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is tender. He handles us with much care. A bruised and battered reed he will not break, right? That's what my experience has been with my Lord. He has only been kind. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says concerning himself, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is a tender servant Savior, isn't he? That's what he is. In Christ, we behold the perfect example, beloved, of gentleness and power, both in one person, perfectly, in a wonderful, perfect balance that we can never, ever measure up to. Now, please note how complete the healing was as well. I mean, how often have you been terribly sick and your health improves slowly and gradually over time, right? We don't get, if we're really, really sick with some kind of a severe fever or maybe the flu or whatever, we, it takes some time to get better, doesn't it? It's slow, it's gradual, it even takes us some time to get back into the groove of things. But notice here that Christ's power is so great, so unrivaled, that when Jesus heals this woman, she's restored to good health immediately and completely. To the point... That at the end of verse 31, it says that she was able to wait on them, to serve them. She went from being down in the dumps to within seconds, perhaps, or minutes of serving the disciples and Jesus. She had been debilitated and unproductive. Now she was able to serve the Lord and the disciples as well. I mean, can you imagine that meal? I mean, she must have cooked up a storm. That must have been the best meal It certainly left an impression upon Peter. If Peter tells John Mark, John Mark, I want you to log this in in your gospel, right? Peter is the is the eyewitness of most of these accounts here. So he's writing to John Mark. I mean, this must have been a great meal. Not just because she cooked up a storm, but because of the joyful attitude with which she probably served them. There must have been joy and laughter and a great conversation around the table with them as she is now healed. But don't miss, beloved, the main person. That when Jesus exercises his authority here, he does so with tenderness and compassion. And isn't this a a picture of what he's done in our lives and having saved us by his grace? This is what he's done in each of our lives. 
And this is what he continues to do even as we, as we walk with him. Even as we struggle with our sins and we have weaknesses. Jesus is constantly the healing balm for our souls as we preach the gospel to ourselves concerning what he did on the cross, right? Jesus continually does that despite our weakness and frailty. He's a good and tender shepherd. And beloved, as we behold Christ... As he does these miracles and as we behold his tenderness and his compassion, we should live to tell about Jesus' goodness in our lives. All the more. Sometimes we talk about evangelism or we talk about sharing our faith and witnessing to people. And it's almost as if this needs to be a forced or coerced thing. You need to be out doing, doing evangelism. You need to be out telling people about the goodness of Jesus Christ, going to the cross and dying for sinners. Like, okay, I guess I'll have to do it. But when you behold the tenderness and compassion of Jesus on the pages of the Gospels, and your, your affections are moved, then your actions follow, right? And that's what we need when we see the tenderness and the compassion of our Lord this way. Our affections are gripped, and we're captivated by this one, and we can't wait to tell people about this tender, compassionate servant Savior. C.H. Spurgeon talks about a woman who had been saved, and she would not be quiet as a believer about what Jesus had done for her as her tender shepherd. And this woman would say to Spurgeon, Oh, Mr. Spurgeon, Christ has changed my life, and he, meaning Christ, shall never hear the end of it. She meant it in a positive way. She could not stay quiet about what Jesus had done for her. And I can only imagine that Simon, Simon Peter's mother-in-law would have been the same way, and Simon was too if he wanted John Mark to pen that particular situation as he was eyewitness to it. So we see here, first of all, that Jesus exercised his authority as a tender servant. Secondly, as a sacrificial servant. As a sacrificial servant in verses 32 to 34. Look at verse 32. When evening came, after the sun had set... The timing here is very significant, by the way. It's still the same Sabbath day on Saturday. So picture it, Jesus, his four disciples, Simon's mother-in-law, who is very healthy, and maybe other members of the family, who knows who else, have a great meal that Saturday afternoon. They're communing with one another. They're having great conversation. And that early afternoon during that meal, no one comes to knocking at the door. No one bothers them. Why? Because the Jewish Sabbath was observed from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. And according to Exodus chapter 20, verses 9 through 10, Jews could do no work at all during the Sabbath, during that period of time. None at all. To do work or to bear anyone's burdens would have been a violation of the Sabbath, according to the Old Testament law, and considered work. So no one comes to bother Jesus. No one comes to the door. But now it's the official end of Sabbath, of Sabbath observance. And all of a sudden, you know what you begin to hear if you are there with Jesus? Knock, knock, knock. Person after person, family after family. Is Jesus here? Is Jesus here? Can I see Jesus, please? Hey, we have somebody here who needs to see Jesus. We have a person here who all of us are carrying who is demon-possessed. Is Jesus here? And before you know it, beloved, you have a packed house. Simon Simon Peter's home is packed full of people and the door is open and it's propped open. Then outside there's a long line of people jockeying for position. And before you know it, you have almost a mob out there. And people want to see Jesus. 
Verse 32 says, when evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and all implied those who were demon possessed. Many people came with physical and spiritual needs. I mean, there are so many people that verse 33 says that the whole city had gathered at the door. We don't know how many people, but maybe hundreds. I mean, if you heard of a man, Jesus, who had just cast out a demon, who had great authority and great power the way that Jesus had, what would you do? If you were sick and nobody could heal you, if you knew of a family member who was demon-possessed, what would you do? You would want to see Jesus. You would want to bring your family members. You would want to see your friends desperately longing to be healed and to be rescued by this one who you know and are hopeful can heal your friend, family member, or yourself. You would come to him. So can you imagine the crowds? Can you imagine how many people are there and the faces of desperation and the eyes of anguish from months or years of being in certain frailties, having certain sufferings, going through certain trials physically, or from spiritual oppression? Picture that. And our Lord is there with great crowds. You know, we the Hernandez's love going on ice cream runs. We love going on ice cream runs. And recently we went to a, a Rite Aid nearby over on Hollywood, and I forget what the cross street there is. But that Rite Aid with wonderful thrifty ice cream, right? I hope that they never get rid of that heavenly ice cream. It's affordable and it's really good. I know it's not good for you physically, but it, man, it's good. But that Rite Aid is directly across the street from another wonderful heavenly place, right? What place is that? Portal. See, there you go. I knew the illustration would work. <clears throat> what a blessed place, huh? Portos, it's this beautiful, wonderful Cuban bakery and restaurant with all, it's got the best flan in the world. The last time we had somebody over, they brought a flan, that thing was gone within a couple of hours. It's a massive thing. Have you ever been to that place when it's empty? It's never empty. I mean, it is packed with people, my goodness. It is full of people inside. There's three or four lines for the various things that you can order in there. And people are pushing each other around. The last time I brought a speaker who preached at our church, he wanted to go to Portos because they didn't have a Portos where he comes from. So, I mean, it took us about 45 minutes to an hour just to get through to buy two things. And then you look outside and along the sidewalk, there's a long line. And all the way around the building, around the street, there are lines of people out there. And you can't even find a parking. There's pushing and shoving and people duking it out to get their turns. I mean, imagine that kind of a packed place. And that pales, beloved, in comparison to the crowds in our text. Pales. In fact, the scene again had left such an impression on Simon Peter that, again, he wants John Mark to log this down. Mark, you should have seen this. Person after person, family after family, packed house inside and out. You should have seen it. It was massive. Meanwhile, our Lord, put yourself in His place. He was tired from the events of earlier in the day. He had already been doing ministry prior to that day, as you know. Maybe Jesus would think that, man, these people are really fickle. All they want is just my miracles. Do they even believe in who I am? You would think that our Lord being in this kind of situation would be reluctant, would be suspicious, not wanting to help these people. But what does he do, beloved? Look at verse 34. 
It says that he healed many. Matthew 8.16 says that he healed all. All who were ill with various diseases, all kinds, multicolored, variegated diseases, all kinds, and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. He healed people. And notice that last part, he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Listen, Jesus didn't do any of this for show so that people would become enamored by him as the, as the, the latest great wonder worker. He wants people to know who he is. The miracles in themselves were never, ever, ever, beloved, the point. Never the point. Peter talks about this in, in his first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. That what Jesus did were attesting signs. Signs that the Father empowered Jesus to be able to do. Pointing to who Jesus was. That Jesus of Nazareth was far than just a man. He was the perfect God-man who had come in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. The point of the miracles were to point to who Jesus was. That they might believe in Him. That they might trust Him. That they might count Him as more valuable than anything in their lives. That's why he did those miracles. So Jesus didn't want popularity that was superficial. He wanted people that had genuine faith, who really embraced him, who understood who he was and what he was there to do and would personalize that so that they understood that he was there to die for their sins as the perfect God-man. So he doesn't permit the demons to speak. He doesn't want his preaching of the gospel to be hindered in any way, shape, or form. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. Though great demands were put on Jesus, He sacrificially served these people who were needy, beloved. Who knows for how long that evening? Who knows that how it went into Sunday morning early at the crack of dawn? Think about all these needy people who were smelly and sweaty and maybe the stench from some of the sicknesses that they had had for a long time. And think about those who were demon-possessed and the intensity of that. And the adrenaline that must have been there on the part of those who were there watching Jesus do this. Jesus viewed people as desperate, broken people who He wanted to lay down His life for and He was there to sacrificially serve those people. The parallel account of Matthew 8.17 tells us that Jesus is healing and this time was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. According to Isaiah 53 verse 4, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Listen to this. He himself took our infirmities and carried our diseases. Isaiah 53, you know the great chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It's pointing to the coming of the future Messiah, the suffering servant, Matthew tells us this, what Jesus did at, at, on that occasion was in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, that he would be one who would not be aloof, who would not be inaccessible, who would not be detached from people, but he was selfless and sacrificial, willing to put himself in people's shoes so that he would heal their diseases and sicknesses. Such was our suffering servant beloved, willing to give himself selflessly and sacrificially for the benefit of others. So truly, as Mark 10.45 says, our theme verse in the Gospel of Mark, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Right? He lived it. He lived it. He sacrificially served people. 
stretchingly, relentlessly, he laid down his life for these people. And so we see our Lord exercising his unrivaled authority as a tender, sacrificial servant, but thirdly, as a devoted servant. As a devoted servant. Look at verse 35. In the early morning, this is now Sunday morning, while it was still dark, sometime before 6 a.m., it says that Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Think about Saturday. A full day in the life of our Lord, right? Jesus had observed the Sabbath on Saturday. He had attended the synagogue. He had taught people. He had ministered to people. He had healed a demon-possessed man with all the intensity and adrenaline that that situation brought about in the synagogue with people watching this. And then you would think that he would have had a calm lunch and everything would have been prepared. But he ends up healing Peter's, uh, Simon Peter's mother-in-law who had a high fever then maybe it would have been nice for him to take a later afternoon nap or maybe to go to bed early so that that night so that the next morning, Sunday morning, he gets up and he's ready for a full day of ministry. But what happens? Boom, 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 knock, 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 person, family, individual after individual. Crowds flock to Simon's house. The whole evening on Saturday, was Jesus was ministering to people nonstop, right? A full day of ministry on Saturday. From a human perspective, Jesus must have been tired, don't you think? Jesus must have been exhausted with the demands of ministry, beloved. But what does he do? What does he do? He gets up. Everybody's still asleep. Away from any distractions. And his ultimate priority is he just wants to commune with his Father. just wants to be with the Lord. wants to be with his Father. He just wants to have fellowship with him. He wants to be refreshed by his heavenly Father. Remember, this is the one who, before coming to earth, clothing himself with humanity, enjoyed eternal fellowship and communion, unhindered with his Father. And when he comes to earth, that's exactly what he wants. He's devoted to his heavenly Father. Maybe he's, he even asked for, the, for fruit from the events of the previous day. Maybe he wants the Father's blessing for the upcoming events of the day. But even with great demands that Jesus prays. Wow! What devotion, amen? What devotion? Is it just for show? I don't think so. He was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. And he lived under the power of the Holy Spirit. He was a God-dependent man, Jesus. But more than that, he just, he wanted to be with his father. He wanted to fellowship and commune with him. Beloved, what happens to us when we get busy as Jesus gets, when we are preoccupied with the demands of life, we do the exact opposite that Jesus does in this text, and we tend to neglect times with our heavenly father, right? I know I am susceptible to that. Our natural tendency when demands are high and when things are, get, get busy is to neglect our time with the Lord. And yet Jesus is the complete opposite. In fact, throughout the Gospels, just do a survey of Jesus' devotion to prayer. 
And you will see how much Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed in public. Jesus prayed in private. Jesus prayed when things were calm. Jesus prayed when things were busy. In the morning, in the day, late at night, overnight, over hard decisions. When experiencing pain and trial and deep anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. What was Jesus doing? Sweating drops of blood. He was praying to his heavenly Father, wasn't he? Always devoted to him. Even in the deepest moments of anguish, he was a God-dependent man, our Lord. What a lesson for us. What a lesson for us. Donald Barnhouse writes this, quote, If Jesus in his great power and oneness with God could feel the urgent necessity of communion with the Father, how much more you and I need to go to the Father for the strength that fills our weakness and the knowledge that fills our ignorance? Prayer brings us into a fellowship with God that nothing else can provide, end quote. And the disciples at this point don't really understand Jesus' devotion to his Father, do they? Look at verse 36. Simon and his companions searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. At some point... At the crack of dawn Sunday morning, maybe there's light out and the disciples wake up and they don't find Jesus. But again, there are knocks on the door, people wanting to see Jesus again. And now they're freaking out. They're running around frantically looking for Jesus. Where is he? People need him. And when they find him, almost with a, a sense of frustration and outrage, they tell him in verse 37, everyone is looking for you. Where you been? People need you. And don't you want to seize upon your popularity? Don't you want to strike while the iron is hot, Jesus? I mean, this is the time to stoke this baby, right? To keep doing miracles for people and growing in popularity. Don't you want to be known? You know who Jesus had as his his utmost priority at that moment? His father, who was to energize him for his mission, right? And so he's with him. Notice what Jesus says in verse 38. Not only is Jesus devoted to communing with his Father, but he's devoted to fulfilling his Father's will. Verse 38, he said to them, Let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. The people wanted Jesus to meet their needs, more miracles, but Jesus is resolute. His face is like flint set upon his mission of preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. What, right? Why? Because he understood that more important than people being healed and experiencing miracles from a physical standpoint, people needed to hear the gospel so that they would be saved from their sins. And if they were saved from their sins, one day all of those physical problems and afflictions would end in a new heavens and a new earth, right? That's why his priority is the bigger picture and really the most profound issue, the problem that they had, which was their sin. He wanted to preach the gospel, the good news concerning himself and his father's kingdom. That was his priority, to deal with the spiritual plight of the people. And so he essentially tells his disciples, we're going on a little extended tour all around the villages and towns of this area. And this is what they do for a while. Look at verse 39. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Please note, 
How does Jesus exercise his unrivaled authority? It's in his serving of people, right? He's absolutely devoted to his father in prayer, and he's devoted to his mission. He doesn't lose sight of his purpose, beloved, to come and to seek and to save those who are lost. What a great lesson this devotion is for us, isn't it? That we get so preoccupied and so distracted by so many things on this earth. I think that's probably one of the, one of the most healthy things that we can do. If you ever have an opportunity, and some of you who have already done this can attest to this. If you ever have an opportunity to go on a, on a short-term mission trip to somewhere else, I think it's perspective shaping. Isn't it, Pastor Tim? Perspective shaping. Because it reminds us of the priority of a kingdom that is not restricted to our geographical location, beloved. Jesus was resolute on his father's kingdom. And in fact, in Mark and Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells the, the crowds, the multitudes there, stop being anxious for everything. Don't be anxious. Instead, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Jesus was about his father's kingdom. He was devoted to that. And if we're going to learn anything about our Lord Jesus is that we need to be devoted to our Heavenly Father and to fulfilling His will on this earth to advance His kingdom, right? That's what we learn from this third point. Now listen, as we see Jesus' unrivaled authority and the exercise of that authority in a tender, sacrificial, and devoted way, what might we learn? What might be some takeaways for us? I think the first one is this. For those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to understand this. The purpose of us going through the Gospel of Mark, if you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior of your life, is first of all that you would behold Him so that you would believe in Him. That you would trust in Him. That you would turn from your sins and count Him as the most valuable person in your life. To stop living for yourself and to trust Him who is the only sin bearer and substitute who paid for your sins on the cross, right? You walk away from the Gospel of Mark and all of these messages just learning more facts about Jesus and more things to know about Jesus and more verses about Jesus. Or you walk away as a non-believer from this text and you say, yeah, I could do that too. I could be tender. I could be compassionate. I could be sacrificial. I could be devoted from a superficial standpoint. Listen, you can't do it apart from being in union with Christ. You can't. The purpose of the Gospel of Mark was not to paint a portrait of Jesus Christ so that we might look at Him as some great moral teacher and try by our own moral bootstraps to become tender and sacrificial and devoted like Him, having rejected His his payment for your sins on the cross. You must believe in this one first and foremost. You must embrace Him. You must turn from your sins and commit your life to this one who is worthy of your worship and of your service. The danger with becoming familiar with facts about Jesus or simply viewing Jesus as a great moral teacher, beloved, is a damning one if you reject His sacrifice on the cross, right? I was at Starbucks yesterday and I was waiting for my son who in Santa Clarita was doing some... um, uh, labs, biology labs there with some other kids and I'm at this nearby Starbucks 
And I have my Bible open, and I'm reading a couple of books and just going through my notes, being in, pre- in preparation for today. And this gentleman walks over. He's Spaniard. He's only Spanish-speaking, so he's a, some kind of a courier, so he's looking for a particular location. So he comes over, and in Spanish, he says, do you speak Spanish? I said, yeah. So he starts asking me for directions to a particular location that he's looking for to deliver a package or whatever. And so we do that. And then after that, he says, hey, in Spanish, so what are you reading? I said, oh, I'm, I'm in, the, in, the, in the book of Mark in the Bible. I said, have you ever read the Bible? He goes, yeah, I've read the Bible. And we started talking about Jesus Christ. And he started asking me questions about Jesus. And I, started, and I just used it as an opportunity to, to share with him the gospel, the good news about what the person and what Jesus did on the cross for sinners, that we might repent and believe in him. And you know what he said after a few minutes of this? You know where it ended? He basically told me, I believe in Jesus. I believe that he was a good man. And I try to be good like Jesus was. He's a great moral teacher to this guy. Having come from Spain in a hardcore Catholic environment, even the things that he was saying weren't even consistent with his Catholic faith, if you will, or so-called. But this man viewed Jesus as a, as a great moral teacher. He didn't understand that Christ was the God-man who demanded everything from him. And I had to remind him of that lovingly at the, at the tail end of that conversation. Beloved, there are people in our services all across America or all over the world in evangelical churches where the gospel is preached, where Christ's person and work are preached, and people view him as simply just a great moral teacher, a great prophet, one of the great prophets of all, or somebody who was created by God, but don't see him as the gospel of Mark portrays him, as the God-man who alone is the one who paid for your sins on the cross. You have no hope apart from Jesus if you haven't repented and trusted in Christ alone for salvation. So why are you sitting in here listening to the gospel of Mark and these messages concerning the person and the work of Christ that you might believe in him, that you might trust in him, What about for those of us who are believers? Well, beloved, we behold Christ. Not just to see Him with our eyes, so that we might treasure Him with our hearts, right? I love the conversation that we had with with Dr. Ware during the Q&A. Do you remember the idea of, of head, heart, hands, and habitat? Head, heart, hands, and habitat. You can know a lot of information about Jesus as a believer, But it doesn't impact your heart so that you treasure him with all of your affections and your passions in your heart. And so that then your affections having been moved in your heart, now you're driven in action with your hands, in your behavior, with your priorities, with your pursuits of life, to now everything that Jesus your Lord desires for you. It's all about Christ. It's all about exalting him. It's all about lifting him and elevating him above anything that I want in this life. It's all about him so that now it impacts the people around you as well home and church, right? And your community. As believers, we want to keep that in mind. We behold Jesus on the pages of Scripture so that our affections, beloved, will be moved and we're driven to loving obedience, grateful obedience, and we impact the world for Christ, right? That's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. And also, as believers, we should never forget about the fact that we're called to walk in His steps, right? So these portraits of Christ as a tender, sacrificial, devoted servant, we want to imitate those things about our Lord. Amen? As our brother, Pastor Alex, preached last week and encouraged us as a body to be serving 
in the church and to be looking for those opportunities to use your gifts and your abilities and your experiences to, to edify the body of Christ. Here's a perfect portrait of one who did that, Christ. Who was tender, who was sacrificial, who was devoted, who even though there were great demands placed upon him, the more popular that he became, the more he sacrificially gave himself, even to the point of death, death on the cross. Amen? May we be like Christ, beloved. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the amazing, amazing person and work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that you, Father, are glorified when your Son is exalted in our hearts and lives. We know that you are glorified when Jesus is exalted in the hearts of spiritually dead sinners, when their affections are awakened by your Spirit to see the glories of Christ as the only Savior of their sins. Father, do that amongst us. May we treasure Christ above all. May we live in this life to exalt Him, Lord. May we do that even now in song. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lachman Foundation.